uh, we are doing uh, two weeks, so last week and this week, we're doing two weeks of just refresher, of just talking about our discipleship philosophy here at Calvary Church. And if you're new to Calvary Church, our discipleship philosophy is called Three Relationships. And we believe that discipleship, being a disciple, occurs in the context of relationship. It occurs in the context of our, our relationship with God, our relationship with the church, and our relationship with the world. And that is a little bit of a shift from some discipleship models, and, and, and we feel that it's very important for us to understand that that process of being a disciple of Jesus is relationship-driven. And so let me give you an example of that, of, of what I mean by that. For some, the highest and, and the sole focus of discipleship is on intellectual learning. If I learn enough, if I, if I have enough knowledge, I must be a good disciple. Well, here, here's the problem with that. I'm married to my wife, Jen. We've, we've been married for uh, about 23 years, 24 up in July. And uh, I know stuff about her. She knows a lot about me too. But I, I know stuff about her. I know that she likes orchids, right? I know that she loves the color yellow and that she loves to roller skate. In fact, if you came to me and you gave me a quiz and I answered all of the questions on that quiz, I would do pretty well because I know a lot about my wife. That does not mean that we necessarily would have had a good relationship. You can know a lot about someone and not know that person. You can know a lot about Jesus. You can rattle off a lot of facts. But if you are not engaging in a relationship, in a lifestyle relationship with Jesus, then what you just know is you know about Jesus. You don't know Jesus. And that's one of the things that we want to highlight in regards to relationship in our three relationships. The other thing is, what we want you to know is that we've identified five rhythms in each of those settings of those three relationships for a total of 15 rhythms, which we feel creates a lifestyle of growing in our relationship with Jesus. Now, these are not a to-do list. Again, we can make discipleship about a to-do list. We can say, if I do this, 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 congratulations, I'm a disciple, I'm good. I took a class, I'm good. If I did these actions, I'm good. It's not about the to-do list. It's not about the action. It's about growing in relationship. Again, for my wife, what would happen if every week, once a week, I come to her and I say, okay, I read about this, and so I am going to make you breakfast and bring it to you in bed. I'm going to write you a note, and I'm going to say I love you. And then I'm not going to spend any time with you for the rest of the week. That wouldn't do well, would it? <laughs> and what I'm saying here is, it's not about checking off things on the to-do list. It's not about saying, okay, I did this, I did this, I did this. It's about creating a rhythm in our lives that draws us closer to Jesus and allows us to grow in our relationship with him. Now, last week, uh, what Charles did was he took a look at God's relationship with the world. And today we're going to be looking at God's relationship with the church. And here's why we're going to be doing that. We are called to have a relationship with the church and relationship with the world and relationship with God. But our relationship with the church and our relationship with the world needs to mirror 
God's heart needs to mirror the heart of Jesus. And so as we look at Jesus' relationship with the world, we learn how our relationship with the world should be. As we look at Jesus' relationship with the church, we learn about how our relationship with the church should be. So we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 16 today. Matthew chapter 16. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Matthew 16. If you don't have a Bible, you can take one of the Bibles in the seat racks here. Uh, Take it home if you don't own one. Uh, We believe that the Bible is filled with life-changing truth. And we want you to have access to that. In Quakertown, they're in the back of the room. You can take one of those as well. Matthew chapter 16, beginning at verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. So Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, the ones that he's done life with, the ones that he cares about, the ones he has a relationship with. And he asks this question, who do people say that I am? And then there's a follow-up question, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter gives an answer, and, and Jesus, pleased with this answer, makes this proclamation over Peter. And what it's talking about in this point is Jesus is revealing that he will build the church and he's revealing the foundation of his church. Now we have to be careful here. There are some denominations, there are some uh, parts of the Christian faith that look at this passage and come to a conclusion that elevates Peter to almost an infallible position, to actually to an infallible position. That's not what's happening here. Peter's almost... Uh, what we see is the greatest among equals. Peter is not infallible. In fact, he just goes on just a few sentences later, and he gets rebuked by Jesus. We see throughout the rest of the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament that that Peter is not perfect. And this is who Jesus says he's going to build the foundation of his church on. Peter and his apostles and Jesus' apostles, but they're not perfect. 
In fact, they're kind of screwed up. Paul gives us a little bit more of this and talks a little bit clearer about this building. And in that, we see a little bit of the truth behind why it's important to understand that Peter is not this infallible person, but in fact is broken. In fact, all that Jesus is building this foundation of his apostles and those who follow him, his disciples, they are broken. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, we get, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together, becoming a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. How is Jesus able to build this foundation of these apostles and prophets, of these people who are not perfect or who are incomplete, in fact, screwed up in in many ways? It is because Jesus himself is the cornerstone that holds the whole foundation together. Jesus not only builds his church, but he is what holds it together. And this is important because far too often that seems to be lost at certain churches. We seem to forget that Jesus needs to be the cornerstone of the church. In fact, we forget that it is Jesus' role to build the church at times. And if we look around in our culture, what we see is we see at times people trying to build the church based on their own skill sets, their own abilities, their own personalities. And the problem with that is, is we are taking a role that does not belong to us. It is Jesus who builds his church. And the second problem is, is that when we try to take on that role that belongs to Jesus, what ends up happening is that we become the glue that holds that foundation together and that will ultimately fail. It is destined to failure if a church is not founded on on a foundation that is glued together by the cornerstone of Jesus. And not only is it destined for failure, but it completely cheapens the cost on which the church was built. You see, there was a cost for building the church. We get this inside the the passage there that we just read, and, and Jesus starts to talk about Hades. He starts to talk about the keys of Hades. And what ends up happening is you need to understand in that culture, uh, the belief was that Hades was the place of the dead. And that once you entered into there, there were gates that prevented you from leaving that place. That there were keys to the gates of Hades, but you could not leave that place. And once you entered it, you were there. In order for, for you to enter that, you had to be dead. And so once you were dead, you could not leave. So in order for freedom from death to occur, there had to be someone who could take the keys to those gates. This is what they were thinking at that time, the belief of what they were saying, what Jesus is referring to. But again, the problem is, the only way to have access to those keys is to be in Hades. The only problem is, is that that would mean that you would be dead, which would mean you would be trapped. The only hope that we would have, the only hope would be if someone more powerful than death subjected himself to death in order to conquer death. The only hope we could have would be if someone more powerful than death subjected himself to death 
in order to conquer death, which is exactly what Jesus did. And he tells his disciples that this is his purpose. He tells them again in verse 21, he says, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. The cost for the church, the cost for the church was Jesus. Jesus himself, Jesus builds the church. He is the the glue that holds the foundation together, and he is the cost for that foundation. And this is wild because we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples at that point. What Jesus is saying is radical. What Jesus is saying goes against all of their expectations. What Jesus is saying goes against all of what they thought would happen. And Peter reveals that in his response. Peter, who was just celebrated a a moment before again, is sharply rebuked by Jesus when Peter argues again against what Jesus says. Why does Jesus rebuke Peter? Because the cost of the church is non-negotiable. There's no haggling involved. And Jesus paid the ultimate price, and the result... The result of paying that price? Well, we just came out of a series not too long ago on the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. Listen to how that book opens in Revelation chapter 1. And we see the result of the price that Jesus pays. We see the result of Jesus paying the cost for the church. We see this, Revelation chapter 1, verse 12. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And then when I turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. This description is a description of Jesus in this revelation that John is seeing. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Jesus pays the cost for the church and is a victorious, eternal king. And he holds the keys to death in Hades. And you see, there was only one who could pay that cost and the only one who could victoriously do so. And that is Jesus. He's the glue that holds the foundation of the church that he builds together. He builds the church and he is the cornerstone and glue of that foundation that he builds. And he is, in fact, the very cost of that foundation. Which leads us to one last question. What is the expectation of the church? If Jesus builds this church, if Jesus is the glue that holds it together, if Jesus is the cornerstone, if Jesus paid the price at a very high price in the cost being himself, then what is the expectation of us, the church? Matthew 28 says this, verse 19. Actually, we'll start at verse 18. 
Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Again, here comes this victorious, all-powerful king, and he says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. The expectation of the church is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Jesus builds his church by sending out his disciples to make more disciples, who then make more disciples, who then make more disciples. But how do we do that? How do we live that out as a church? Well, through our relationship with God, our relationship with the church, and our relationship with the world. And we do it by following Jesus' example. I said earlier at the beginning that in order to understand how our relationship with the world was last week, we had to go and take a look at God, at Jesus' relationship with the world. In order to understand our relationship with the church, we have to also understand what Jesus' relationship is with the church. You see, the expectation of the church... is that we are willing to pay the cost of discipleship. Let's go back into Matthew 16. What is this cost of discipleship? Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. The path of discipleship is the path of the cross. The path of discipleship is the path of the cross. And just like the cost that Jesus paid was non-negotiable, the cost of discipleship is non-negotiable. So what does that look like for you? What what does that look like to take up your cross and follow him? Well, that might look different for each one of us. For some, it could be like the missionaries that we talk about every first Sunday on Impact Sunday. It could be that you go and live out a life as a missionary. For some, it could be that you are a sacrificial giver. For some, it might be that you forgive someone. I don't know what the specifics are for you. What I do know is this. The way of the cross is putting Jesus above myself in every and all aspects of my life. The way of the cross is putting Jesus First. So what is the one thing that I'm holding on to too tightly? What, what is the one thing that I can put all these other things in front of Jesus and say, Jesus, you are first in this, but you know what? I'm going to hold this one back a little bit, okay? I'll, I'll trust you with all of this, but this one, I got this one, okay? We're good. Everything that I am, everything that I I have, all of my life needs to be placed in front of the cross and given to Jesus. Jesus must be first. He must be first. There is a cost to discipleship. And here's what I mean by that. We cannot earn the right to be Jesus' disciple, okay? We can't earn that. We cannot do anything to earn the right to be Jesus' disciple. 
That can only happen because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The cost had to be paid by Jesus and Jesus alone. But in the same light, we cannot choose to say yes to Jesus' call to follow and say no to his call to take up our cross. The expectation of the church is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. And the way we do that is by taking up our crosses and following Jesus. What is it? What is it that you're holding on to that you cannot let go of? That you have to trust. You have to be willing to go through that hurt. You have to be willing to go through that scariness of not being in control. What is it that you are holding on to? Because that just might be the cross that Jesus is asking you to carry. We are called to be a church that makes disciples. We are called to take up our crosses and follow him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the cost that you were willing to pay to build your church, to call us to you. And Lord, I ask you that you would allow each person in this room to grow in their relationship with you. Lord, there's a lot of excitement when we think about being your disciple. There's a lot of, uh, of, of joy in the concept of continuing what you started. But Lord, we sometimes don't want to focus on the fact that we are called take up our crosses when we are called to follow you. Lord, I ask that you reveal in our hearts, each one of us personally, what that is. What it is that you're calling us to do. And that you would fill us with the strength and courage of your Holy Spirit to take up that cross and follow you. I pray this in Jesus' name.